All right, so we are in week number four of the series, Stand Firm. We're in Ephesians chapter six, where the, the subject matter is spiritual warfare. And we know that there is a real battle, that there is a real enemy, but praise the Lord, there is a real victor, Jesus Christ the righteous. And our goal in spiritual warfare is to stand firm. Now, this is not a passive position. This is an active position. It means to resist that which opposes us, to hold our position. And really, for us, this means to hold our position in Christ, that Christ has gone on the offensive. He has won the victory. And because of that, we can stand firm and hold our position in Christ. And the way that we stand firm is, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, it's by putting on and using the whole armor of God. Now, last week I had a kind of passing um, mention of a Marvel reference, and I'm going to dig into that a little bit more this morning. Uh, Tony Stark, Iron Man, uh, you may or may not be familiar. You may not be a superhero nerd like I am, all right? But all you need to know about Tony Stark is he's, he's brilliant, he's charismatic, he um, is, is powerful, but when it comes to battle, when it comes to physically, he is powerless unless he has this Iron Man suit on, all right? He's powerless without this suit, which, which as you see through, through the movies, it, it comes on in pieces. And so kind of every movie they make, he's got these new inventions of how this armor comes to, you know, rest, you know, form on his, his person, right? But he, without all of these pieces, even though all these pieces are powerful on their own. He needs all of these things on him working in conjunction and harmony with one another. And it's very much like the armor of God. In fact, I think Stan Lee ripped off Iron Man from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 because we need every piece of armor. They all work in conjunction with one another. And we can't just put on one piece. We need the whole armor of God working together. And so last week we talked about the belt of truth. And we saw that truth is like a belt that comes around our core, the center of our lives, and it holds our lives together. And it helps us be prepared to fight, to battle. So every other piece of armor that we're going to talk about, including this week's, we need the belt of truth. We need truth to even understand or to know how to, what those pieces of armor are and how to put them on. We need that belt of truth to hold our lives together and to prepare us to fight. And we'll never, I said this last week, we'll never experience a life of victory without developing a love of truth. And so that's the first piece, the belt of truth. This week, we're going to talk about the breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness. I want to give you a little heads up, FYI, uh, there are going to be a number of scriptures this morning. So if you want to catch up later in the Bible app, um, feel free to do that. And the reason why I want to kind of warn you, um, I tend to, if, if you know my preaching at all, I tend to err on the side of more scripture than less. And the reason I do that is not because I'm trying to fill your head with you know, a bunch of Bible knowledge, but, but one of the, the basics of, of, of learning and understanding the Bible is we compare Scripture with Scripture. 
All right, the, 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 the principles, the, the, the doctrines and teachings of the scripture, one of the ways that we learn to understand how God thinks, the mind of Christ, is we compare scripture with scripture, things that God has said all throughout his book. And so we're going to work through some things today, uh, but, but I'm excited for this. So we're going to jump into the breastplate of righteousness. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to read back through verses 10 up through verses 14 where we're in today. So Paul says in Ephesians 6, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and here's our phrase for this morning, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So you need to understand a a, a breastplate, the, the purpose of a breastplate in battle was to protect Vital organs. All right, so think about some of your vital organs that would be covered by a breastplate. You've got the kidney. You've got uh, the liver. You have lungs. What might be the most obvious and maybe the most vital organ that you have? The heart. The heart. And the heart is, is always under attack. You know, as I was, as I was kind of preparing for the sermon. I, I kind of knew this in my head, but I wanted to get some kind of evidence. And so I was looking online and looking at the CDC and some statistics. Year after year after year in the United States, do you know what the leading cause of death is? It's heart disease, which includes heart attacks and, and the rest. And we, we understand that the, the heart is, is always under attack. Spiritually, I believe, in my opinion, is, is the pivotal uh, battleground in our lives is, is our hearts. Our hearts are always under attack. Joel Beek, who is a pastor and theologian, he, he said it this way in describing the heart and, 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 and this part of us. He says, Paul, people in Paul's day believed that organs such as the heart and the liver were the center of affections. Emotions such as joy and anger originated in these organs. The Apostle Paul used this understanding, unscientific though it was, to teach important spiritual lessons. He said believers must put on the breastplate of righteousness to protect the vital parts of the inner man and its faculties against the attacks of Satan. And scripture, you know, scripture backs this up in, in Proverbs 4.23, the writer says this, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Some translations say to guard your heart or to watch over your heart, to keep or to protect your heart, because what it says is that out of your heart flow the issues of life. And so everything that we think and everything that we say and everything that we do, ultimately, it all flows out of our heart. 
And, and again, I would say that this, this, this is the primary battleground of our lives. We'll, we'll talk in a few weeks when we talk about the helmet of salvation, that the mind is another, another um, one of these vital organs and a battleground for all of us. But ultimately, it all, even our, what we think in our mind, it all comes from our hearts. It all flows out of our hearts. There's this quote that I've been contemplating a lot lately. Um, it's, it's by Tim Keller. He says, don't let success go to your head. Don't let failure go to your heart. I think that's such a powerful quote because the reality is we let, we let almost everything go to our hearts, right? When we fail, um, when we're struggling, uh, things go to our hearts because everything, the issues of life flow out of our, our hearts. And when you look at the Bible, the way that the Bible, the way that God kind of speaks about the heart, it's really, it's, it, it encompasses the whole inner man. So our mind and our will and our emotions, our, our inner man. And the reality is that if our heart is exposed, if our heart is exposed, and, and what I mean by that is if, if our hearts aren't captivated by Christ and we leave them open and exposed, the reality is that our hearts will be attacked and we will suffer uh, deep, deadly wounds if we allow our hearts to be exposed and, and, and open and not protected. And so we need to protect our hearts because what happens, these wounds come in and, and we, we deal with guilt and shame and fear and anxiety and discouragement and we let all of this into our hearts. And unless we run back to Christ and are captivated by him and, and allow him to protect our hearts, uh, man, we suffer deep fatal wounds. And so we need to protect our hearts. But how do we do that? With what do we protect our hearts? And I want to pull out a little um, illustration this morning, all right? This is going to serve as my... Uh, breastplate of righteousness. Let's see if I can work this here while I'm speaking. Okay, I didn't practice this with, with a headset on, all right? I, sh I thought of that earlier. Bad pastor, all right. Okay, so I'm going to strap this on. Technically, I guess this might be called a uh, ballistic vest. Us commoners, civilians might call this a, a bulletproof vest or, you know, body armor, right? Um, but the purpose of, of this is, is what? protect my vital organs, right? It's to keep me, hopefully, alive. And this is really the idea behind the breastplate of righteousness. It's to protect our vital organs, most vital of all, our hearts, that are always under attack. And so what is this breastplate made of? Not this literal breastplate, all right? The breastplate of righteousness. And so we need to figure out what is Righteousness, And I'm going to try to preach with a vest on, all right? I probably should do this every week as a pastor. Um, you know what I'm saying? Um, <laughs> but what is righteousness? What is, biblically, what is righteousness all about? Well, let me give you a, a dictionary definition. Um, righteousness is conduct that is morally right or justifiable. It's moral uprightness. This is what a dictionary might define as, as, as righteousness. Now, I want us to think for just a few minutes about, biblically, what, what do we see when, it, when, when the Bible speaks about righteousness? So let's, let's, 
Let's go through some scriptures here. First of all, we see that God is righteous. He really is our standard of, of what righteousness is. God is righteous. So let me cruise through a few verses here. Psalm 11 verse 7 says, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Psalm 89 verse 14. It says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. So righteousness is, is, is a foundation of his throne. Psalm 116 verse 5, it says, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. And we could go on and on and on, but when you compare Scripture with Scripture, it's clear that the Lord God is righteous and he loves righteousness. The second thing here when it comes to righteousness is that God blesses those who are righteous. God blesses those who are righteous. Psalm 5 verse 12, and a lot of these were coming out of the Psalms and Proverbs that speak about the Lord. Psalm 5 verse 12 says, for you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. You bless the righteous. Psalm 34 Verse number 15, it says that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are, are toward their cry. Verse 17 in Psalm 34 goes on to say that when, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and he delivers them out of their trouble. So his eyes and his ears are, are toward the righteous. Psalm 92, verse 12, it says that the righteous, what? They flourish they thrive like the palm tree and they grow like a cedar in Lebanon. God blesses the righteous. Proverbs 13, verse 6, it says that righteousness guards him whose way is blameless, but sin overthrows the wicked. So God blesses the righteous. Righteousness guards us. It protects us. God is righteous. God blesses those who are righteous. And then righteousness leads to life. And we're just kind of cruising through the scriptures here. What, what are some things that the Bible says about righteousness? Righteousness leads to life. Proverbs 11, verse 4, it says that riches do not profit in the day of wrath. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the day of wrath. But righteousness delivers from death. It does matter, your condition, when it comes to righteousness. Verse 19 of Proverbs 11, it says, Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live but he who pursues evil will die. Proverbs 12, 28, it says, in the path of righteousness is what? Is life. In the path of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. Proverbs 21, verse 21, it says that whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life. Life and righteousness and honor. And so God is righteous, God blesses those who are righteous, and righteousness leads to life. So, so here's the question then. Is righteousness really, is it just a matter of doing good? Is righteousness just a matter of doing what is right? Eh, well, it's complicated, right? Yes and no. Uh, what is righteousness all about? You think about in Jesus' day, who were the most righteous people? There is a group of people called the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders of his day. And they were obsessed with righteousness. They were obsessed with doing the right thing. They were obsessed with the law and following the law. 
to the letter of the law. They were obsessed with it. But I want you to hear what Jesus says about them in in Matthew 5, as Jesus is, is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He says some interesting things here. Matthew 5, verse 20. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, And in his day, when you thought about righteousness or righteous people, you thought about the Pharisees. They were the masters of righteousness in their day. And Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then then Jesus goes on throughout Matthew 5, and he begins to expand on this idea of righteousness. And he uses this phrase a couple times where he says, "You've, you've heard it said this, but I say to you. So for instance, Jesus says, okay, you've heard it said, don't, uh, don't murder. But I say to you, if, if, if you hate your brother in your heart, man, you've already murdered. Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, you have already committed adultery. And so Jesus goes above and beyond this external obedience to the law, and he goes to this internal obedience. He goes to the the inner man, and then he he comes down to Matthew 5, verse 48, and he kind of ends this this whole section by saying, you therefore must be what? Perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so so track here with Jesus. He's saying, Okay, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't get to enter into heaven. But then he takes it a step further and says, okay, your righteousness has to be more than an external righteousness. It's got to be in the heart. And then he comes down and he drops this bomb where he says, okay, now that you've heard all that, you therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And then he goes on another place. Jesus says, okay, if you were to summarize the whole law, all of these hundreds of laws into two commands, here's how I'd summarize it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay, in other words, love God perfectly and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the whole law all wrapped up into these two commands. And so what we see here is that the measuring stick for righteousness is God's law. The measuring stick for righteousness is God's law. In other words, God's own perfection. God's own perfection in every attribute, every attitude, every behavior, every word. God's own perfection is the standard or the measuring stick for righteousness. And so let me ask you a question. How do you measure up? How do you measure up? That's, that's not good news for us, is it? It's, if God's own perfection is the standard for righteousness, and we have to be perfect as our Father in, in heaven is perfect, in order to know God, in order to see the kingdom of heaven, man, that is bad news for us, right? Because the bad news is this. We can't do it. We can't do it. There's no way for us to achieve God's level of righteousness. Romans 3.10 says that there's no one that's righteous. No, not one. We saw a couple weeks ago, Isaiah 64.6 says that all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, like filthy rags. And so there's no way that we could be righteous 
enough. The standard is way too high. That's the bad news. But the good news is that we can be made righteous. We can be made righteous. We can't be righteous enough, but we can be made righteous. And so I want to I want to talk about two aspects of righteousness. When we talk about this breastplate of righteousness, there's really two aspects to this. And I want to use a, a biblical word today, a theological word, okay? One, there's, there's two aspects. One is theological and one is, is practical. Now, I'm not just trying to like puff up your theological head and understanding today. Really, my, my heart is, is for you to protect your heart with a righteousness that isn't your own that has been given to you. So let me, let me talk about these two types of righteousness because we've got to understand, if we're going to put on a breastplate of righteousness, we've got to understand what this righteousness is, is really all about. So the, the first kind of righteousness is what we would call imputed righteousness. And this is that big theological term. But we need to understand this. What is imputed righteousness? To, to impute something is to attribute or to ascribe to another. Right, to credit to another's account. And so the way that I think about this is, you know, my three teenage boys all have checking accounts. And I'm a co-owner co on each of those accounts because they're minors, right? And so if, if I want to say I want to transfer $100 to each of my son's accounts, uh, it's usually working in the opposite way. I'm usually taking out of their accounts. Okay, that's, that's it's not necessarily supposed to be funny. That's reality. I'm taking from them. But if I wanted to credit, their, if I wanted to give them 100 bucks, okay, so they would look at their account and maybe there's, let's say there's 10 bucks in their account. And all of a sudden they go to their account. Now it says, the balance says 110. And they go, oh, wow, okay, awesome. Why? Why do they have that? It's because I have credited it to their account. They didn't, they didn't possess it. They didn't own it. But I, I, I transferred it. I credited to their account that $100. So imputed righteousness is a righteousness that doesn't belong to us, that we don't possess, but is given to us. It's credited to our account. It's transferred to us. And that righteousness comes from Christ. And I want you to see a few verses here. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. It says, For for our sake, he made him to be sin. God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And you need to see that part where it says that he knew no sin. Because, you know, when we think of Jesus, a lot of times we think of the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus, which we ought to. But just as important as the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus was the perfect, sinless, righteous life that Jesus lived. That is just as important because if Jesus was a sinner like we, like we are, and if he had died on the cross and he tried to impute his righteousness to us, if he tried to credit our account with his righteousness and he's a sinner just like we're a sinner, it would do us no good. But Jesus, man, we're so grateful that he died for us and he rose again but we ought to be just as thankful that Jesus for 33 years lived a perfect, sinless life so that he could impute his righteousness to us. Y'all, we can't even go 33 minutes without sinning. And Jesus lived 
perfectly obedient, perfectly in perfect obedience to his father's law, never once breaking the law of God, lived this perfectly righteous life so that he could die, be buried, rise again. And in our putting our faith in him, he could impute his perfect righteousness to us so that we could know God, so that we could enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is why righteousness is so important because without his perfect righteousness, we cannot be perfect as his father in heaven is perfect. We need a righteousness that is not our own to be given to us, to be credited to our account so that as we are placed in Christ, God sees us and he sees his son, perfectly righteous. So this imputed righteousness is so important. So we see that in 2 Corinthians 5. Let me give you a couple other verses. Romans 3, 21 and 22. Paul says here, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Okay, righteousness, it doesn't come through the law. It says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so this righteousness, it's, it's not something that we achieve through observing the law. No, it's something that we receive through faith. For, it's for all who believe. This is the righteousness that's, that's given to us. Philippians 3 verse 9, it says, Paul, he, he's talking about that, that I may gain Christ in verse 9, that I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Okay, that is what we might call self-righteous, like our own standard of, of righteousness or goodness. He said, I, I don't want a, a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through what? Comes through what? Faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith This righteousness, it's not something that we achieve. It's something that we receive from God. And so when we talk about this breastplate of righteousness, this first aspect of of righteousness is imputed righteousness. It's not a righteousness of our own. It's, It's given to us. It's credited to our account. So it's the righteousness of Christ. But then the second aspect of righteousness is is what what I would call the call practical righteousness. So it's it's a it's a righteousness that is practiced that we that we live out. We live a godly life. We pursue holiness in our life and all that we think and all that we say and all that we do. And so we don't just say okay, I've 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 received the righteousness of Christ and now I just I live for myself and I live however I want to live. No, it's a practical righteousness. So I seek to live this holy, godly life. And what you see, Paul, throughout the book of Ephesians, he talks about this. He instructs the believers to walk as children of light, right? He instructs them to live in a holy way. And we see this, again, all throughout the scriptures. I want to take you to a few places. First Thessalonians 5, verse 8. It says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on, and here's this phrase, the breastplate, of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So we talked about this breastplate concerning faith and love. In other words, this is 
practical righteousness lived out in our life. We exercise faith and, and love in our life. First Timothy 6, verse 11. Jack used this on Wednesday night, and I love this, this verse. Paul, as he's talking to Timothy, says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue what? Pursue righteousness. Go after it. Go after godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. You man of God, you who have been made righteous, now go pursue righteousness. Live a godly life full of faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. Again, Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, so flee youthful passions and pursue what? Righteousness. Go after it. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And so this, this, there's this idea of practical righteousness that we've received the righteousness of Christ. Now we can go after it. We can pursue it. We can live lives that are, are godly. And as we live, now think about it in, in your life. As we live godly lives, as we live holy, upright lives, it allows us to have like a clear conscience, right? It allows us to have a clear conscience because when we sin against God or against others, man, we, we deal with guilt and shame. And what happens is when we, when we settle into that place, it, it exposes our heart. And, and so as we, as we live holy, godly lives, we, get, we have a clean conscience which protects and fortifies our heart. And so when we sin, we have to run back to Christ and confess and receive forgiveness and stand firm in his righteousness. And then we can begin to pursue a righteous life again, which again, it protects and it fortifies our life. And so this, this breastplate of righteousness, think about it, these, these two aspects of righteousness. First, it is the imputed righteousness of Christ and then it's this, this practical righteousness that comes out of our lives as we pursue righteousness, as we live a godly life. And so again, think about this, this breastplate, all right? It's so weird to, to like preach with a weighted vest on. <laughs> I have never done this in my life. Uh, it protects our hearts, right? It's, it's, it's two things. It's the righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Christ that we can stand firm in. And we need this first righteousness if we're going to pursue the second. We need the righteousness of Christ to allow us to live righteous lives. And sometimes what we do is we get it backwards. We try to be righteous. We try to do good. We try to do the right thing so that God will see us as righteous and holy. No, that's backwards that's backwards. Christ has already won the victory. He's already given us the victory at the cross through his perfect life, death, and resurrection. He's imputed it to us when we put our faith in him. He has made us righteous. Now we can live holy, righteous, godly lives. And as we do both, as we put on this breastplate of the imputed righteousness of Christ, and as we walk in righteousness, we protect and fortify our hearts from the constant, constant attacks of the enemy. And we need this protection. 
And so this, this, this bottom line today is, is this. My heart is protected when I put on and pursue righteousness. My heart is protected when I put on and pursue righteousness. And so let me, let me take just a, a couple minutes really quick to talk about how do we practically, how do we put on the breastplate of righteousness? Okay, it's, it's not like we just strap on a vest. How do we put on this breastplate of righteousness? It's two things we've been talking about. We receive his righteousness, we receive his righteousness, and then we pursue a righteous life. So when it comes to receiving his righteousness, the question is this. Have you ever received his righteousness by faith? Have you confessed? Like you've come to the end of yourself where you're like, there's no way I could be perfect. There's no way I can do enough good stuff. God, I get it. I get it. I'm broken. I'm sinful. I need you. And you've placed your faith in Jesus. That is, this is the only way that you can receive his righteousness. It comes through humbly submitting yourself to him and receiving what he's done for you by faith. That is how you receive that. But then there's really this ongoing thing of us daily, like standing firm, remembering our righteous standing in Christ. Because here's what happens. When you and I sin, we hear these accusations. We beat ourselves up. We feel guilt and shame. And we hear these voices from our own heads or from the enemy saying, man, you're not good enough. God doesn't love you. You're, you're not loved. You're not worthy. Man, you, we, we hear these things because we've, we've opened our hearts up. We've allowed our hearts to become exposed. And so we've got to remember, this isn't how God sees me. God doesn't see me primarily as a sinner who is dirty, rotten, filthy, that should be destroyed. No, he sees us. Again, when we put our faith in Jesus, when we've received Christ, he sees us in his son. He sees us in Christ as someone who is righteous, not because we are righteous on our own, but because his righteousness has been imputed to us. And so we've got to receive his righteousness. And then we've got to pursue a righteous life, which means we flee evil and we go after godliness, which is way more than just, I'm going to come to church. It's way more than just, I'm going to read my Bible. It's, man, I'm going to pursue the heart of God. I want to live a life that glorifies God. And when I sin, when I screw up, I'm going to run right back to him. And I want to remember his righteousness. I'm going to stand in it. And I'm going to begin to walk in righteousness again. And so it's just this daily thing of pursuing a righteous life. Again, we need the first. We need his righteousness if we're going to do the second and so I want, to, I want to read you this quote from a couple guys. They wrote a book called Spiritual Warfare, Brian Borgman and Rob, Rob Ventura, two pastors. And, and they said it this way. And just, again, a simple kind of summation of all that we've been talking about. They said, this is our spiritual breastplate. If we are not constantly mindful of our righteous standing in Christ, or if we are not striving to live righteous lives by God's grace, we become easy targets for the adversary. It's all about protecting our hearts. It's all about protecting our hearts. Should we set up boundaries and guidelines and things in our, our lives so that we don't sin? Absolutely we should. 
But the real protection for every single one of us is the righteousness of Christ, that we stand in his righteousness and we begin to pursue day after day after day a righteous life. I want to end by going to uh, talking about Matthew chapter 22. Jesus in Matthew 22, he's telling this parable that we, we call the parable of the, the wedding feast. And as Jesus is telling this story to his disciples, what you see is, is he compares the kingdom of heaven to this, this, this wedding feast. This king who, who threw this wedding feast for his son. Maybe, maybe you're familiar with this, this story. And what the king did was he, he prepared this incredible meal of oxen and fat, fattened calves. You know, he's, he's breaking out all the good stuff to throw this wedding feast for his son. And, and what he does is he sends this, his servants out to, uh, to, to invite folks into the party. And those who were invited, man, they, they carry on with their own stuff. They kind of blow it off. They're going, around, going about their own business. Um, some of, of those who were invited to the wedding feast even insulted the, the servants, and some even killed them. I think that's kind of where that phrase, don't kill the messenger, came from. You know, they, they're inviting people into this feast, and, and no, one, no one is coming. And so the king, man, when he gets word back about this, he's, he's angry. He's frustrated. And he comes to the conclusion, okay, those who were invited, man, they weren't worthy. And so he instructs his servants to go back out again into the main road. And he says, I want you to invite everyone who will come. Man, invite them into this feast. And, and what, what you see through the story is that apparently everyone who was invited into this feast and who came, the king gave them a wedding garment. He gave them a wedding garment because, you know, these folks were coming in off the street in their filthy street clothes. And so the king provides them with a wedding garment. Okay, it's like you, if you and I showed up at a wedding, you know, um, like Jack does to preach in bare, you know, in bare feet and shorts, right? And be like, ah, you, 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 need, you need a proper wedding garment to come into this feast. And I want you to see how this, this story ends in Matthew 22, verse number 11. It says, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here? How did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. And this is an incredible picture that Jesus lays out for us of what we call imputed righteousness. That this, this guest who was invited into this feast, man, he was, he was wearing tattered clothes, filthy rags. He didn't even deserve to to make his way into this feast. But he was invited in and he was provided with a white wedding garment so that he could come in clothed in white. He could walk in pure. And the picture here, if you know the end of the story, 
Revelation chapter 19, all those that have put their faith in Jesus, we will make our way to a wedding feast. It's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And we will enter that feast clothed in white garments. It's not our righteousness, y'all. It is the righteousness of Christ who has died for us and has clothed us with his righteousness. And he invites us into this incredible wedding feast. Without that righteousness, we can't get in. He says many are called. He invites many, but only those who put on the wedding garment, only those who clothe themselves in the righteousness of Christ get to enter in. And y'all, Jesus has died for us. He has provided his, his own righteousness for us. I say, here, I want to clothe you in my righteousness. I want to make you righteous so that you could live a life of righteousness, so that you could honor me, so that as children of light, man, others would see, others would be attracted to, and others would respond to this invitation from the King. This is the kind of God that we have, y'all. He is righteous, he is holy, and he has invited us to receive his righteousness. And he has provided for us this, this breastplate, this protection to guard and to protect and to keep our hearts out of which all the issues of our life flow. And so I want to ask you to bow your heads with me this morning as we thank the Lord for his righteousness that he has provided for us. And I just want to ask you a couple questions. First, do you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to your account? Have you been saved by grace through faith in Jesus? Have you ever just come to the end of yourself and put your faith in Jesus? Have you turned from your sin and asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins? Do you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to your account? You know, maybe this morning here in the room or online, maybe you would say, you know, I've never done that before. I've tried to do the, the right thing. I've tried to live a good life, but I've never received his righteousness. I've never put my faith in him, his death and burial and resurrection for the forgiveness of my sins. I've never done that. The good news that I have for y'all is that you can do that right now, right here, anywhere. You can do that at home. You can do that on the drive home. You can do that in this place this morning. All you have to do is repent, to turn from your sin, to confess that you believe in Jesus, that he is Lord, that he loves you, that he died for you. And in putting your faith in him and him alone, you can receive his righteousness. Have you done that? If not, would you do that this morning? And the other question for all of us that I have is this. If you have put your faith in Jesus, are you pursuing a righteous life? 
don't just blow by this. Are you fleeing evil? Are you going after godliness? Are you trying to pursue the God of righteousness? Are you seeking to kill sin in your life and eliminate sin? Are you trying to resist temptation? Are you trying to please the Lord and live a holy life? You know, maybe you would say this morning, man, I'm saved, I've put my faith in Jesus, but man, I'm struggling. I want to live a righteous life. But man, I'm struggling, would you pray, would you pray for me? And I just wanna ask you in this room with heads bowed and eyes closed, I don't do this often, but I would love to pray for you if that's where you're at. Would you raise your hand? Man, I just need help living a godly life. I won't, I won't call you by name, but I would love to pray for you. Just raise your hand right now. And Lord, this morning I come before you and I'm grateful that you are a God of righteousness. That even though all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before you, that you have provided your righteousness for us that we can receive by faith in Christ. And Lord, for those who may be listening that are in a place where they need to submit to you and they need to give their life over to you, God, I pray that today would be a day when they would do that, that you would clothe them in your righteousness today. And God, for those who are struggling to live righteously, God, we all struggle to live in a way that pleases you. God, would you help us to live a life that is godly? God, we love you. Would you protect our hearts? Would you guard our hearts? We pray. We pray in the righteous, holy, mighty, matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Would you all stand with us?